Today's episode is about racism against Asian Americans in the COVID-19 era, but we would be absolutely unable to start this episode without mentioning some current events that are happening in the United States right now. Misasha, you and I wrote a piece on Medium. It was our first time foraying into the written word about an open letter to the white woman in Central Park. And we really saw the connection. It was really motivated after the death of George Floyd. We saw the connection and the thread between all the things that have been happening. And I think you and I both really resonated with Trevor Noah's video that he did. If you haven't watched it, do, because his ability to explain the domino effect was really, really critical. But one of the things you and I were talking about, and we want to talk about as we lead into this conversation about Asian Americans, is this idea that how does that conflict with this, or does it conflict with this idea of Black Lives Matter? Because I think it goes without saying that if you've ever listened to our show, we do believe that Black Lives Matter. And we think that it does cheapen it if you say all lives matter, because all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter. It's true. And, you know, I think what is so striking about George Floyd and the image of the officer crushing his windpipe with his knee on the street, you know, while other officers are standing around and watching murder happen is something that should strike at the hearts of all of us. Because what do we stand for if we don't stand for murder is wrong in this instance, that you are taking a man's life because you can for no real reason, except that you have the power to do that in that moment. And I think that regardless of race, this should anger all of us. But because this is systemically happened to Black people over and over again in our country's history, and increasingly more obvious in recent weeks, that we should be outraged. I mean, this is not a time for us to just sit back and take it in and wonder about the other things that are happening and be concerned with all of the things that are happening as a result. Like Sarah, you said, Trevor Noah's video talks a lot about the domino effect and how one thing happens and it triggers a whole chain of events. So things that are happening in other cities are not unrelated to just the basic lack of humanity that was displayed in such an egregious scale in Minneapolis. What do people do about it? Because like you said, we don't want to sit back and just watch. We're seeing targets being looted, stores being lit on fire. It doesn't even matter whether it was started, you know, all these conspiracy theories flying around about the guy with white skin and black outfit blowing out the windows of the auto zone, I think it was. Like, you know, it's happening regardless of what you think about it, regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong, it's happening because enough is enough. And we've been here before, change hasn't happened from peaceful protests, but for people who maybe don't want to go stand in a protest, don't want to go to a march, there's still other things that can be done. And I think obviously people know on this show, having conversations is not a bad place to start. You're not doing anything by challenging your friends, by challenging your family, by bringing conversations about race up with your kids. That is doing something. And yet sometimes people feel like, you know what, engaging on Facebook is still not enough. I feel this urge. Misasha, you and I had this conversation. I was like itching. I'm like in a store and I'm like, I want to talk to more black people about like, I feel so bad. This is not, okay, that's like a ridiculous maybe example, but like we're feeling, right? If you're paying attention and you're human, you're feeling something, hopefully. Mm -hmm. 
And if you want to do something, we've also spoken on our show about voting with your wallet. Yes. Voting with your wallet is so important now because there are organizations. I mean, you know, we love the Southern Poverty Law Center. We talk a lot on our show about various organizations that deal with racial justice. And if you can do so, now is the time to support those organizations. And it doesn't have to be just through financial contributions. It can be sharing their posts on social media. It can be by telling people about them. It can be by volunteering for them because a lot of them have community-based support groups. I think what is really important to do now is you know, not stay silent because there has been so much silence in our nation's history, especially on the part of the people who are in the have section as opposed to the have nots, which I loved from that Trevor Noah piece too. I think that you see the world very differently when you are a have versus a have not, which is what he said. And I think that is absolutely true in our country. So do not wait and stay silent and buy the Black Lives Matter t-shirt off of eBay because you believe that two weeks later. Now is the time to stand up and tell people what you think And you're right, it can just be from conversations or challenging something that you see. If you see something, say something. I think it's a great place to start. We talk about it a lot. I think we talk about it actually in the episode you're about to hear. So small things do matter, but silence is what we can't have right now because silence is sort of a mark against humanity. And silence is a choice to allow the system to carry on the way it has been. So you have to decide whether you're gonna agree with the system now by staying silent or if you're ready to speak up. Hi, and welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we are going to talk about yet another uplifting topic, but one that is really close to both of our hearts. As half Japanese, half white individuals, racism against Asian Americans is something that is hard to take. Each of our parents are Asian. And in the COVID era, we want to share with you a lot of stuff that's coming up and want to share with you also how you can be an ally. Before then, little celebration of the listener of the week. (laughs) Not coincidentally, but it is kind of coincidentally, our listener (laughs) of the week is an Asian American individual. Moss from North Carolina, you are our listener of the week. And we really appreciated the comments you sent in after you listened to the interview with Antonia Wint about being a Black parent, raising a child who will be perceived as Black. What I really liked was the comment that you made, Moss, about saying that the part about distrust of doctors and hospitals was interesting and obviously has a huge impact on black people's health outcomes. And fast forwarding a little bit, I mean, you mentioned high profile black people like Jay-Z and Beyonce who are going to plant-based diets, maybe will have an influence on the food culture. And the food industry is so big and there is nutrition education in schools, but in the U.S. it feels like convenience always wins out over what's healthy. And Misasha, you and I read that and we had a conversation offline. Like, let's talk about that a little. The reason I like it was because it spurred on our conversation, too. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said about convenience versus health. But I think there that is true in some ways, depending on the socioeconomic group that you belong to, because you know, as by virtue of marriage now, I spend a lot more time in the South than I pretty much ever did, except for the story that I'm going to tell next. But I think that it's not only convenience versus healthy, but it's what's cheap and is filling at times. And a lot of health issues, 
I guess I think it's sometimes easy to say that, oh, what's convenient, you know, fast food or something, you know, cheap and not nutritious versus healthy. But I think it's important to think about what food really costs and the cost of fresh fruits and the cost of produce versus if you're hungry and you have one meal a day, let's say, you need to make your money go as far as possible. So are you going to be buying you know, the expensive arugula and, you know, you're not buying a $13 salad, you know, Bay Area style, you're going to be buying something that is probably a lot less nutritious in that fresh produce sense, but something that's going to be filling. And yes, will that lead to health problems down the road? Quite possibly. But you know, and also time is a factor too. If you're working three jobs and you need to feed your four kids and you've got about, you know, 30 seconds for you to eat, what is that going to look like? And what's that going to be? And are you going to be able to go to the grocery store and get fresh produce? Or are you going to rely largely on canned goods, boxed goods, things that might not have those nutrients in the same way? And on top of that, the time to prepare the food, right? If in terms of vegetables, unless you're shoving raw carrots at kids, you know, which is such a winner generally all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I know how kids love those raw vegetables. So, Oh, I know. They are such fans. But though I do have one kid who likes vinegared baked kale, that is odd. It's like the only vegetable one child eats. But I guess my point of this was to just say, to eat delicious vegetables, sometimes you need time to cook them. And if you're working three jobs, that's not what you're going to do. And I think one of the problems we have in the United States versus, you know, you and I have this insight into Japan Even if you go to the convenience store, yes, there are preservatives in the food, but you have rice balls that are stuffed with salmon for $1.50. There's no, if you roll into the 7-Eleven in the United States, you can get like a Slurpee maybe for that. I don't even know. I haven't been to a 7-Eleven in forever. I don't know what the price points are, but you don't have the equivalent quality of food available at the certain price points that convenience offers in other countries. Yeah. Completely. I think that's such a huge difference and something that can't be overlooked, especially when we think about the state of nutrition in our country versus other countries as well. Absolutely. But again, lots of conversation there. That's why, Moss, thank you for being the listener of the week. And if you haven't heard that incredible interview with Antonio Wint a few weeks back, please go on and listen to it because we've just gotten so many comments about that particular episode and the shift in perspective that people have experienced from it. Yeah. So I already hinted at this, but I want to start this episode with a story that may seem random at first. And along the way, I realized that I'm totally dating myself. You'll see why. So it was the summer after my second year of law school, and I, along with two girlfriends, decided that the best way to get back to L.A., where we had our summer jobs from New York, was to drive. I mean, obviously, everyone's first choice. All right, look, it sounds great when you're in your 20s, okay, and you don't have responsibilities, and you're like, we're just going to rent a car and take 10 days to get to LA. Oh, and my back can take it back in the <laughs> yeah. 20 now. I'm like, no. <laughs> we didn't really, we didn't think about, you know, like logistics or literally we were like, where are we going to stop tonight? Okay. So yeah. So it was really well thought out. All right. Three um, lawyers. So we planned this route that goes through some pretty great cities and cities that we had never been to before. But along the way, I really wanted to stop in this tiny town in the northwest corner of Tennessee, which happens to be the small town in which my grandfather was born, obviously not the Japanese one, and where some of our ancestors are buried. So again, sounded awesome, didn't really plan it, but seemed like a great way to learn about family history. 
But this was the summer of 2003. This is where I'm dating myself. And also my two girlfriends are 100% Asian. So not they look Asian, whereas I often pass as white. This is important because we pull our rental car into the small town square where it's clear that we are the only people driving a non-American made car. So tiny town square, we're rolling in in our rental car. I don't even remember what it was, not a US car. So as we start to get out, it is even more obvious that we are bringing diversity in a big way to this town. I mean, we upped the diversity by 100%. So we look at each other then because we realize this all at the same time and very seriously say, no one cough. Because if you remember what that summer was, besides being the last summer before I sold my soul. That's a whole other story. <laughs> kidding. Really? Mom and dad? Yep. Anyway, it was the summer of SARS, if you remember that, which wasn't even really a blip on the American radar for the most part, but it was a virus from China, if that sounds familiar. And we were Asians. Okay. I was, you know, the incognito Asian, but still in a town where we really stood out and we felt it. So I thought for sure that this feeling that we had when we were saying no one cough, which became sort of the joke of the trip, but in a funny, not funny sort of way, was a one-off thing. And for the record, no one coughed. It was perfectly fine. We only stayed about like a hot four minutes in that town. But anyway you know, but yeah, we thought this was a one-time occurrence. And I remember when you took that trip, which means that we have been friends for a very, very long time. And before we move on, I do have a question. Like when you said you felt it, mm -hmm. what can you point to that made you feel it? And I ask this because a lot of people are like, well, you made that up. Or, you know, like there's some skepticism from people who've never experienced it. I'm curious for you in that instance, what made you feel like you feel it? You know, like when you're being watched, you can feel someone watching you and you can feel that very viscerally when it's just one person. But this, it was like everyone was staring at us. And I am sure also it's because they were like, where did these people come from? They just rolled into the town square. This one woman says that she's got relatives here, whatever, never seen her. Her last name was Suzuki. That all seems whatever. But yeah, you can feel everyone watching you. And it's not in a warm, accepting, you know, like, let's all be friends, kumbaya sort of way. It is in a watching for a misstep and judging type of way. And how that judging goes, you don't know. So you are on high alert. That's interesting. And I think that people who are women who feel the looks that men might give, it's one of those things you just know when it's happening, but other people might not be able to, you can't point to necessarily one or two instances that were egregious, you just know it. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. So this time around, you were talking about SARS, now we're talking about COVID-19, and it started with our president calling it the Chinese virus. Remember that one way back when we first started talking about COVID-19 in this country? And I think at that point we said... Don't say that it's racist. But what happens when your president keeps saying that and his trusted allies keep saying that? And AAPI, which is a shorthand for Asian American Pacific Islanders, start to be targeted. It certainly made for a really strange AAPI History Month this May, that's for sure. A little ironic, right? But this isn't the first time Asians have been targeted in this country. We've talked about Japanese internment. There's just, I don't even want to get into the details, but what is happening? And why is this happening? And what can you do about it? 
Just to give a couple examples, Jeff Yang experienced what he calls his own, quote, breathing while Asian moment while he was shopping at his local grocery store in Los Angeles. Even as the host of a podcast about being Asian and American, Yang said he was taken aback when a woman leaving the store noticed him, the only Asian in line, and started shouting profanities. He recalls, she pulled down her mask, coughed theatrically in my direction, pulled up her mask, walked away, got into a car and drove away. I was too shocked to do anything. It really was a bit of a gut punch. Wow. Let's flash back for a second to how we started this episode. In a White House news briefing with his coronavirus task force at the end of March, President Trump said, quote, I talk about the Chinese virus and I mean it. That's where it came from. Jeff Yang, who just talked about that moment where this woman, you know, targets him because he's Asian, said that Trump's language has been echoed by Republican members of Congress as part of what he considers a coordinated effort targeting Asian Americans. Yang said, the biggest fear I have now isn't just widespread acts of individual bigotry. It's a concerted campaign on the part of the Trump administration to sharpen the blade of racialization, to assign this blame in such a way that Chinese people are perceived to be the threat. That could literally be a part of his presidential reelection campaign. Jeez, could you imagine if that were to come to be? And how many people are astute enough to differentiate between Chinese people, Korean people, Japanese people? Right. It's Asians in general. And I can totally imagine that. That's like the terrifying part. I can totally imagine it. It's scary. You know, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination these days to get there. These days, anything is possible. Another example. For Jenny Herbes Chan, an architect in New York, it was a trip on the subway on March 10th, which was her last day in the office before the citywide stay-at-home order. And this is what shook her. She said, a man sort of lurched at me and shouted, you people brought the virus, go back to China. And she says, I was a little in shock. I just put my head down and tried not to make any eye contact after that. Like so many others, she went about her day and didn't report the incident to law enforcement. What she said about that was you just bury your head and you move forward because no matter how hard you work, how successful you are, what friends you make, you just don't belong. You will always be looked at as foreign. And what's scary is like incidents like these have been on the rise in recent weeks and some have escalated beyond verbal assaults. A family of three was stabbed outside of a store in Midland, Texas. The FBI says the man who was arrested after that incident may face federal hate crime charges. And, you know, who knows, things may be updated by now, but as of this recording, and in March, the FBI also started warning local law enforcement around the country of a potential surge in hate crime incidents against Asian Americans because of coronavirus fears, according to an FBI analysis obtained by ABC News. So in mid-March, the president denounced reports of hateful rhetoric and violence when he was questioned by reporters on whether his words could lead to an increase in anti-Asian sentiments. There could be a little bit of nasty language towards the Asian Americans in our country, and I don't like that at all, he said. These are incredible people. They love our country, and I'm not going to let it happen. However, apparently there was a carve out when he said nasty language for whatever comes out of his mouth. So according to a Politico article from that same time frame, Trump told reporters at another coronavirus task force daily news briefing when he was pressed on his repeated use of the term Chinese virus, he said, quote, it's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why it comes from China. I want to be accurate, which 
I mean, that might be the first time he's ever really like concerned about accuracy, but I digress. <laughs> anyway, the president, <laughs> just personal stuff coming out here. Okay. The president invoked the controversial descriptor in three morning Twitter posts on that same day, initially assuring Americans forced out of work by the burgeoning outbreak that the quote onslaught of the Chinese virus is not your fault. Trump then wrote that he would be holding a news conference to discuss an announcement from the Food and Drug Administration, quote, concerning the Chinese virus, and claimed he had, quote, always treated the Chinese virus very seriously, despite his previous comments minimizing its risk to the country. Fast forward a little to early May, Trump was still holding strong to his theory, completely unbacked by scientific proof, that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. Clearly, he's saying one thing, especially about, you know, this nasty language, but doing another, like, for example, you know, wearing a mask to tour a Ford plant in the face of what the attorney general of Michigan says, one wonders. But anyway, clearly a dichotomy between what he's saying and what he's doing. Trump has said his decision to put in place travel restrictions on flights coming from China beginning at the end of January was, you know, due to this. Basically, under the travel restrictions, non-U.S. citizens, other than the immediate family of U.S. citizens and permanent residents, were prohibited from entering the U.S. if they had traveled to China within the previous two weeks. So basically, only foreigners, but citizens could travel back home. He claimed that this helped slow the spread of the virus in the United States, which when you go to factcheck.org, it shows only delays the impact, not actually saving lives. And he later expanded restrictions to other countries seen as virus hotspots. But notably, it was China first. While Trump justifies the bans as necessary to protect against the virus, they were also in keeping with his history of anti-immigration policies, according to Erica Lee who is the director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. And Lee said about these policies, quote, this assault on immigration happened long before the virus came to our shores. His policies have already built on this idea that foreigners, foreignness, foreign enemies are out to get the United States and that we need to put America first. So she is the author of a book called America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. And she also says that fear of disease from immigrant groups has long been part of American history, going back to the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. So another one of those examples, Sarah, that you were mentioning at the start of this history of xenophobia, which put severe restrictions on Chinese immigrants that she believes the country later came to regret. She also believes that the current pandemic could be a way for the Trump administration to propose more stringent immigration restrictions. And finally, she also said, and this to me was sort of like a gut punch, but future historians will look upon this period as the absolute high point of xenophobia in our history. By high point, meaning the worst or high point being this is the best? Like the absolute max level of xenophobia in our country. Let's hope. So at the absolute most distrust of and hatred towards foreigners. But I mean, have we seen the end of that, though? Yeah. I don't know. There's still stuff going on at the border that we haven't resolved. There's more to come, depending on what we discover about the virus. Yeah, let's hope that this is the worst that it gets, right? But I mean, basically, it's awful that people, you know, that don't have necessarily other or aren't any less American than white people be seen as outsiders. 
And it was this kind of increase in day-to-day accounts of shunning, of spitting, of other verbal and physical attacks in the wake of the pandemic that led some Asian American groups to create hate crime reporting websites to better document the unfolding situation on the ground. And so I want to just share a couple of things here because these were really fascinating. One of the tools is called Stop AAPI Hate. And it was created by a California-based advocacy organization, and it collects reports of hate incidences in seven languages, which I thought was very awesome. And as of its most recent press release, which at the time of this recording dated May 13th, 2020, since its official launch in mid-March, the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center has received over 1,700 reports of coronavirus discrimination from Asian Americans across the country. So in six weeks, 1,700 reports. The Reporting Center was founded by the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council, the Chinese for Affirmative Action, and the San Francisco State University's Asian American Studies Department. So it's great to see groups working together to create resources and data gathering centers like this. But here are the following patterns that we saw over the course of those six weeks. Like I said, they received 1,700 incident reports. Nine out of 10 respondents believe that they were targeted because of their race. 37% of incidents took place at public venues like streets, parks, and transit. And reports came from 45 states across the nation and Washington, D.C. So it's not one or two places. It's all over the place. The co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action, Cynthia Choi, she said, I've committed myself to read every single account. It's hard to keep up. And she said, we knew things would start to get a lot worse before things get better. And unfortunately, our predictions are getting true. For Choi, she says the most upsetting accounts she's read have targeted healthcare workers on the front lines battling the coronavirus. So in one instance, a doctor on his way to work was told to go back to bleeping F-word China. And in another, a nurse delivering medicine to a sick patient was spit on. Like, who are you people doing this to your healthcare care? Who are you doing it to anybody? But people helping you? Like... What is going on? I know. Another organization that helped create the website, the Asian Pacific Planning and Policy Council, the executive director, Manjusha Kulkami, she said the attacks on children are the most upsetting. Children are the target about 6% of all reports, according to the analysis. And as you and I know, I mean, hello, children, you gotta be nice to the kids right? She said one of the worst incidents she recalls hearing about occurred in the weeks before schools across the country closed. And a 12-year-old was taunted at school by a classmate who yelled at him to go back to China. When the student protested, the bully punched him in the head 20 times. Kulkarni said, this is unfortunately part of our new reality, along with tremendous fears of contracting the virus. And like others, she singles out the language of elected leaders, including Trump, as a contributing factor in the reports her organization is receiving. And to that point, I mean, I think going back to Antonio's episode that we mentioned at the beginning, he did make the good point that hate and discrimination have existed long before the Trump administration. I think what we're hearing here is that certain leaders of these organizations do think that they are a contributing factor to make it come to the surface a lot more readily in recent times. Yeah. And to that point, I think there's also been a lot of usage of history in a way that is promoting some forms of racist behavior or it's sort of a whitewashing of history in certain ways. I was just reading actually before we got on to record this episode that there was one state that was arguing that the shelter in place directive and to keep people at homes was akin to Japanese American internment during World War II, which and then I- 
I read a very strongly worded denouncement by the Japanese American Citizens League that was like, so absolutely not. It is not at all the same thing. You know, when we are asking people to shelter at home to prevent the spread of a disease that is a global pandemic versus racially profiling and grouping people in camps that were made out of converted racetracks because we happen to be fighting a war against a country from which you might be a descendant of. Those are two completely separate things. But I think we've seen history being, and you know how much I love history, but history being used in different ways now and scary ways, I think. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and convoluted ways, misinterpreted ways. So speaking of history and government, is there or has there been a larger response to this, you know, perhaps a legislative one? And the answer to that is kind of. So Virginia's senior U.S. senior U.S. Senator Mark Warner joined 15 other Democrat senators in early May to urge the U.S. Department of Justice to do something about these hate crimes and discrimination. And they wrote a letter, basically. In the letter, it said there are more than 20 million Americans of Asian descent and 2 million Asian American and Pacific Islander individuals are working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic as healthcare workers, law enforcement agents, first responders, and other essential service providers. It is critical that the Civil Rights Division ensure that the civil and constitutional rights of all Americans are protected during this pandemic. So... In this letter, again, it was Senator Warner and 15 other Democratic senators. In writing and signing this letter, they expressed disappointment at the Department of Justice response, or what they called the inadequate federal response, which has been sort of a sharp break from the efforts of the past, Republican and Democratic alike. And they called specifically for the Civil Rights Division to release a concrete plan that would address COVID-19-related hate crimes and discrimination, designate an official to coordinate an interagency response and review of these incidents, and provide monthly updates to Congress. In this letter, they also called for public outreach from the division and a way to engage with the Asian American Pacific Islander community leaders and distribute materials about civil rights protections in languages used by these communities. This joint effort letter follows a letter directly from Senator Warner to President Trump back in April, urging him to avoid using rhetoric that fuels racism towards Asian Americans and to prevent confusion about COVID-19 from being exploited to target communities of color. Early on in the U.S. response to the pandemic, Senator Warner called on the corona coronavirus task force to only distribute accurate information about the virus and dispel misinformation or discriminatory rhetoric to help prevent suspicion, panic, and race-based assaults. I think it's interesting to note that we haven't seen anything come of it. I think there might be some pushback that people would say, well, there's only 1,700 incidents, but these are the reported stats. And I think about people like my mom, my Asian friends, everybody that I have spoken to about it has said they've thought twice about going out. Even just for a moment, it's crossed their mind. And I think if that's the kind of environment that we're fostering, then absolutely it needs to be addressed. And it's better to address it when there's 1,700 instances of you know, documented hate crimes or discrimination versus when it's a million or, you know, there's it's just such an arbitrary target to say, well, now we should address it because it's this number. If hate is disgusting and it's important to address that early. Yeah. Well, and I think that there are 
always cultural and language barriers to reporting, right? And I think, especially here where you have so many languages in the Asian community, that these insults are coming and these discriminatory acts are happening. And there's a lot of cultural pressure to just sort of be quiet, try and assimilate, don't stand out, or you might not even understand specifically what's being directed at you, how. So you have to assume that that number is way lower, as always, than the actual amount of incidents happening. Agreed. You know, if you're a target, though, it's hard to wait for help because I mentioned even for people who haven't had that thrown at them yet, there is a toll that it takes on you to be in that position of the defense. And we've often discussed this when it comes to people of color. People targeted by racism are shown to experience mental and physical health consequences. And so how can you be an ally if this strain of racism isn't directed at you? And the point is onlookers can play a key role in the seriousness of that suffering with proven ways to reduce distress for victims. And this is all according to advocates and experts. You know, some responses to obvious racism, say you're in the park, you're in public transportation, you're in the supermarket, it may seem obvious, but research shows that a majority of bystanders will fail to intervene. If you imagine someone being yelled at, think about yourself and say you're with your kids, are you going to speak up or will you stay quiet? So it's important to be armed or think about what you might do if this scenario arises. For victims of abuse, small gestures from bystanders can go a long way. And this is from John Yang, who's the president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. He says, for witnesses that see a hate incidents, especially verbal abuse, even standing next to the victim without saying anything to the perpetrator gives the victim comfort and a sense of protection. And having more people stand next to them to show their solidarity helps to diffuse the situation in a way that we don't want to escalate or have it become physical. So that's one way that if you're not going to say something, you can just stand next to them and show your physical support. Another person, Rosalind Cho, an associate professor of sociology at Georgia State University, explored the concept of witnesses speaking out against xenophobic attacks in her book, The Myth of the Model Minority, Asian Americans Facing Racism. And she says, if it's safe, and I teach all my students this, we do an exercise about it at the end of the semester, you support oppression by saying nothing when you know it's wrong. So even just speaking up and saying, hey, that's not okay, it goes a long way. You know, just physically standing by someone provides comfort, she said, just like John Yang said. But in cases involving violence or where you otherwise can't do anything, consider calling the police. But obviously, we've talked about the impact of if police are called on people of color in this country and the response these days. So think about that carefully. But, you know, if you feel something, say something or show your support, that really does help people who are being attacked. I love that. And I think that it's so powerful, even just speaking up or physically standing next to someone without even saying anything. And I think it's especially important to consider how to be an ally when you think about all those interactions that aren't happening when you're physically with someone, especially now, because we're physically distant a lot of the times, because there's the overwhelming amount of race-based vitriol on social media these days. So true. Yeah. So Andrew Jakubowicz, a sociology professor emeritus at the University of Technology in Sydney, who specializes in cyber racism and race relations, said the coronavirus pandemic had undeniably ramped up racist memes, tropes, and disinformation online. Anyone who sees these hateful or false messages should report them to the social media platform and ask others to as well, he says. But joining the dialogue can also be helpful. 
He also says, we know that bystanders have a really powerful effect on racist outbursts. This could range from a supportive comment, calling out prejudice, or participating in groups intended to support targeted communities. So basically, the same principles apply. If you see something, if you read something, speak up. And this part is really critical. If targets get upset and push back, racists often celebrate that as a sign of their success. I mean, that makes sense, though. Like, if you're bullied and you get upset, the bully's happy because they got the response they wanted. So it's kind of like that. I read it or I hear it like that. Yes, I do, too, because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that response from you. But what they're not necessarily looking for is the bystander response or the ally response. So if bystanders who racists are actually trying to recruit into their mindset push back, that can demobilize racists at attacks significantly. That's interesting. That's cool. You know, whether you've been subjected to discrimination or not, simply hearing about the widespread xenophobia can affect your mental health. And we ask therapists who work within the Asian American communities to share their best self-care advice for these stressful times. And this is from an article, but their number one tip is reach out to friends, online friends count to who can validate your experiences. You know, like you said, Misasha, we're physically distancing right now, but social bonds are more important than ever, especially if you're emotionally exhausted from this current wave of xenophobia and racism. You know, maybe you've experienced a glare or rude comment yourself at the market or on a walk. And a clinical social worker who works in the Asian American community in LA said, I think the need for connection is particularly important when we've encountered a micro or macro aggression. We should be sharing the burden of our experience. Let family and friends know what's happening. So if you see or hear about another person who's been targeted, reach out and validate their experiences. For instance, if you see a social media post about someone being verbally abused, make a point to comment. I mean, it could be something like, hey, we don't know each other, but we're mutual friends through whoever. I just want to tell you I'm so sorry about what happened when you were walking your dog. I've had some experiences like that myself, so let me know if you want to talk. Um, This clinical social worker said oftentimes with things like this, you need someone to witness, listen, and affirm what you've experienced. And I'd also suggest joining a person of color or Asian American online community or an advocacy organization to hear more voices that are dealing with this right now to find larger supportive networks that are mobilizing outreach or action. And so some of the more popular online communities like nextshark.com or the Facebook group Subtle Asian Traits can serve as a good jumping off point when looking for specific advocacy groups. So I think, you know, what this boils down to in a nutshell is if you see something, say something. Doing nothing is never okay in that scenario. On these points, we've got some additional links, including an amazing video to watch. It is long, 24 minutes, but it's really worth it. And it's a video that breaks down the issues surrounding the Asian American Pacific Islander community today in terms of racism and COVID-19. So we'll be sending this out in our newsletter. We'll also have the link to where you can report incidents if you are a victim or you know someone who has been a victim of one of these hate crimes. These will be in our show notes and our newsletter, I think. Okay, yes. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter so it comes to you, you know you do, go to www.dearwhitewomen.com and sign up to stay informed. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 